This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by AstraZeneca, a science-led biopharmaceutical company dedicated to partnering with leading scientific companies, organizations, and the community to improve outcomes for cancer patients. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Tuesday, November 13th, entrepreneur and philanthropist Sean Parker, FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, and famed oncologists Ned Sharpless, Douglas Lowey, and Zeke Emanuel discussed advances in cancer detection and treatment at the Washington Post's third annual Chasing Cancer Summit. In this segment, Sean Parker, founder and chairman of the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy, discusses his $250 million investment in the development of new technologies to combat cancer, and he examines which fields of research hold the most promise for patients. Let's listen. Hello, I'm Robert Costa, national political reporter here at The Washington Post. Joined today and honored to have Sean Parker, a technology disruptor going back to his days with Facebook, now Spotify, and of course now with cancer with the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy. Sean, thanks so much for being here at the Washington Post. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So when you think about what you're doing with cancer, you've given $250 million to the initiative of finding a cure research. What have you learned as you've just dove into this space? Well, well, you know, I think one of the, the more important learnings were early on, actually, you Stand Up to Cancer was playing uh, a moment ago, and, and one of the very first contributions I made uh, in the field was, uh, was around immunotherapy at a time when immunotherapy wasn't a thing. Now there's almost too much buzz and too much hype around it, and, and there's, you know, we've gone through the first wave of immunotherapy treatments coming to market, the first cell therapies and the first checkpoint inhibitors. Um, Jim Allison, who's one of our researchers, just won the Nobel Prize for medicine, you know, a couple weeks ago. Affiliated with your work. Yeah, so, so, and, and he was, the, he was I think, the first person in the field who, who actually took the time to talk to me and, and educate me. And I'd read his papers going back to the mid-90s, and he had data from 1995, the first patient he ever treated, a melanoma patient who had who had survived, you know, um, and this was probably, you know, ten years ago, something like that, t- 10, 12 years ago, um, and and so there was there was plenty of good data that showed that in melanoma checkpoint checkpoint inhibitors worked, and I'm I was I I had just had this inc- this strong gut feeling that the field of immunotherapy was going to become the next frontier in, in cancer treatment because we'd been we'd been going after um, oncogenes and the oncogenic driver mutations for a long time, trying to find targeted therapies. We'd had some success, as some of you may know, with kinase inhibitors and uh, a variety of other, you know, small molecule drugs. But the idea that the immune system played some sort of role in regulating cancer was not in vogue. Uh, and, and, and yet the data seemed to contradict this. And, you know, I ended up, I ended up sort of catching that wave at, at the at precisely the correct moment. So the, the, the big realization was that the immune system does in fact play a role in regulating the early stages of cancer, that um, all tumors, you know, eventually meta- uh, during, you know, prior to or, or, or concurrent with metastases develop uh, immunosuppressive capabilities that shut the immune system down, and that if you can block those 
uh, with drugs or by creating targeted cell therapies, uh, then you can, you can overcome all of the obstacles that cancer sets up. So, so this what's is... The ne- what's the yeah. next big breakthrough on that front? So I'm, I'm within, within PICE, you know, you have the group of people who are looking for new IO targets or immunotherapy or immune oncology targets. Um, you, we, you know, so you, you might, we might have another, so anti-PD-1 is on the market and anti-CTLA-4. Anti-CTLA-4 is called Yervoy. It was developed by uh, Jim Allison, uh, sold by BMS. Then you have Keytruda and Opdivo, and they're anti-PD-1 drugs. These drugs work great in melanoma, and they're a great companion to other uh, cancer treatments, standard of care in other indications, but they're not necessarily curative. They're pretty curative in melanoma. The other modality is is cell therapy, and this is like for this is my my personal kind of bias. And you can't be a specialist in everything, especially when you get into medicine. You find that you find that uh, you know you, you very quickly have to sort of narrow your focus. So I've 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 I've, I've become kind of the cell therapy guru within our group, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much obsessed with T-cell biology. And we have working, leading that team, Carl June, who built the first and got to market the first T-cell therapy. Um, and it, it's, it's really extraordinary. So, you know, in the 1990s, we talked a lot about uh, nanotechnology. I don't remember this, if, you, if any of you remember this conversation that was taking place in the, the technology press, like Wired Magazine, or I'm sure the Washington Post ran articles on it. And the idea was that you'd have these little nanobots that were roving through your body, like doing various things. And, and I'm not sure if anybody knew what these things were going to be made of. I think the notion was that they were going to be like little silicone-based robots, and I'm not sure how that would be compatible with your body. But, 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 but it was a cool idea. And I remember thinking, wow, that's really cool. I have robots in my body, like cleaning crap out of my endothelium when I get arthrosclerosis. It's going to be amazing. And, and then, I, then I remember thinking, like, wow, man, those robots could come with lasers and kill cancer. That would be so cool. And then what, what, what ended up happening is no less cool. It just sounds more complicated. <laughs> Sorry. What's the uh, timeline for this? I mean, you, you, some of your friends, yeah. like Elon Musk, say because of your work, Cancer could be this, these kind of technologies could help eradicate cancer in ten years. So I am super optimistic, and and the, and the reason I'm optimistic about cell therapy in particular is that the way it works is is again sounds complicated, very simple. Take cells out of a patient's body, you modify them currently with with a viral vector, it, which edits the cell. Okay, you modify the cell so that it 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 it, it sees a target that is a, that that. You know, you can give it a cancer-specific target, you can give it a cell-specific target, but you reprogram that cell so it targets only cancer, or only the cells you want to kill. Um, and then you arm it with various other capabilities. You make it, you make it expand better, you potentially, uh, you, can do all, you can do any amount of, of, of rewiring of the cellular programming of the cell, of a T cell. Because we know so much about, about signaling within T cells. I mean, in, in truth, we know a tiny fraction of what there is to be known, but we know enough. So we can reprogram T cells, turn them into this, uh, once we've produced you know, several thousand of them, you can expand them in culture and you can grow hundreds of millions or billions of these cells. And then you just give the cells back to the patient, the cells kill the cancer, and then they leave your normal cells alone. And, and, and the, that, that is a... Is this different than gene editing? Because you've been a huge investor in gene editing. Well, well so... so you know, you're, you're probably thinking like CRISPR-Cas9. And, and CRISPR-Cas9 is, is, has... 
so, so many different applications, depending on what you're trying to do. I mean, it, 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 the, the original hope with CRISPR-Cas9 is that you could fix, uh, you know, remove, uh, maybe do germline gene editing, meaning you're actually modifying an unborn baby, removing a genetic defect or fixing genetic defects in adult somatic cells once they, once a, you know, in, in order to, you know, restore function, correct, you know, various heritable diseases. That's where most of the conversation has been. But, but it, you know, that, that's the, the, as fast as CRISPR-Cas9 is at making gene edits, um, the fact that it still relies on things like viral vectors that you use to transfect the cell make it really slow. And we've had some major breakthroughs in the last, I don't know, 90 days. What's the key one in the last 90 days? So, in the, so there, there were two, two papers published by Pisces researchers. Um, actually, one of those papers is not yet published, so I can't, I can't get into too much you detail You can give us the scoop here at but the Washington I will, it, I will give you the... Um, uh, it, it, it is coming out soon in, in Cell. But I'll give, you, I'll give you this sort of high level and anybody sophisticated can fill in the blanks. Um, the, the high level is that you, know, you can use electroporation or whatever technology you want really uh, just to push a guide RNA and, and Cas9 into a cell and that you can now for the very first time make, make a cut and insert a very large amount of DNA. So this was published in Nature, I don't know, whatever, six months ago or whenever it came out. And, and you know, we've shown that you can, you can, you can insert an entirely new uh, T cell receptor, you know, 1,500, uh, up to about 1,500 bases of DNA into a cell without killing it, without harming it or messing it up in any way. And the, and the electroporation is probably the most harmful part of the process, when you literally just shock the cell. And for whatever reason, no one's quite sure, <laughs> once you electrocute a cell, you have like a... You can, you can get this CRISPR-Cas9 cassette to go in and, and make the edit in the correct spot. Um, so that what, that what that allows you to do is, is make, insert huge amounts of genetic programming into a cell very, very rapidly so that let's say you wanted to experiment with, um, you know, mutating a whole variety of different genes or, or starting to get into what, they, what we used to call the junk part of, the D, of your DNA, you know, they say 25,000 or so genes in the coding region, and then there's all zillions of other genes that apparently don't do anything. Well, it turns out they do a lot. They, they, they regulate the expression of genes in the, in the coding region. So that's all very sounding very technical. The reality is we can now go in and we can, with, with incredible precision and control, reprogram the way these cells function. So in essence, they are those little nanobots that we were talking about in the 1990s, but it turns out that they're made of your own cells. They're your own cells reprogrammed. So we can now iterate through with, with this very rapid process with, with you know, huge, massively parallel. How much does it cost, Sean? I mean, if you, you spent your whole career but, thinking about accessibility across all these different... I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you an example of, 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 of one experiment that was, that was done uh, by, by you know, a lead investigator and a pair of grad students in a week. So they effectively knocked out every gene um, in a T cell. And they only did it in one type of T cell, what's called a CD8 cell, which is an effector cell. It's a, it's a killing cell. 
and they didn't, you know, they didn't do it in every state of the cell. I mean, in, in generally, what you'd want to do was look at, you know, look at a cell after it's killed, or look at a cell when it's exhausted, or look at a cell when it's been suppressed by cancer, and then run, the, and then knock out every gene and see what see what happens. They did a mo something simpler, which is they they knocked out every gene in the cell one by one. Um, that's a lot of a lot of gene knockouts. You can imagine how many months or years that would take using normal methods. And, and then looked at things like how quickly did the cells expand? You know, did they expand faster or slower? Maybe they looked at a lot of other markers. The, what, what came of this was they recapitulated in a week 30 years of work that had been done by the leading uh, immunologists in the world, in the field. People who started their work on maybe on HIV in the 80s or even previous to that. And, and had, had discovered all of these things like immune checkpoint inhibitors, or immune checkpoints like CTLA-4 and PD-1. These popped up, these, these genes all popped up, and they were able to find all of this stuff, and you can bet that they found a bunch of new targets that no one had ever heard of. Because when you, when you, when, when you have an inflection point in, in, in the, uh, any, any given industry... Is this an inflection point right now? I, I think, I mean, I, th I think that's what makes this so interesting to your original question, is that we are, there's enough technologies coming together we all know gene sequencing is happening, but rapidly parallel gene sequencing. Now, now, suddenly, now suddenly we really do have enough data to justify big data and AI. You know, we actually, you know, you know I've, I've been going on panels like this one saying, well, you know, it may be premature to, to think that Google's going to solve all of our problems in healthcare be, because they've got a great AI team and tons of computational power. We just don't know enough about the biology. Well, now that you can do massively parallel, totally unbiased screens where you can understand exactly what a gene does, its functional relevance to a particular cell in a particular tissue uh, in a particular individual, whether that individual is healthy or has cancer or whatever, that allows you, that unlocks this ability to interrogate cells, to learn about their function, learn about the circuitry of the cells, the, how, how they're wired, basically. Um, I mean, just, just having a map of the human genome is pretty damn useless if you don't know what the genes do. And so we're, we're, we're now entering a realm where that discovery process is going to happen much, much faster, and it's not going to require like this 10 or 20 year laborious process of trying to understand some little piece of T cell biology in order to get your PhD, and then eventually like, you know, you become a specialist in that one narrow little area. This is going to, I think we're going to see a, a real explosion in terms of how quickly we can move, and not just because of, of DNA sequencing, um, you, you know, or not just because we can use CRISPR-Cas9 to very rapidly test things in a cell to see what they do, but also because you have all these other crazy tools, like you can look at, uh, you can do sync, you can do RNA seq and look look to see, you know, what proteins. Who's going to do this? How, it's Google, Amazon. Are they doing they're, enough? Are they being effective? They're in not the going. They're, they're not going to do this stuff because they, uh, you know, the 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 thing that I had to overcome coming from computer science to biology was that. You know, as complicated as, as, as building, you know, uh, back-end infrastructure for Amazon, you know, being able to support that much data, as hard as that is, that's a hard problem. You know, being able to support a billion-plus users at Facebook at scale, that's a hard problem. These are, they're, these are only really hard technical problems, but, but tech people coming from tech to biology so dramatically underestimate the complexity of the human body and the, and the, and the amount of... Um, it doesn't, it's, it's not designed by us. It doesn't work in ways that make sense.
<laughs> and and it, 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 it requires, we, we have such a, we maybe, we maybe know the function of like a half, a, a half of 1% of genes. So like when you, you know, if you get your whole genome sequence, which you can now do for like a thousand bucks or, or less, uh, they can't really tell you that much. It's actually incredibly disappointing. Anybody who's paid that thousand dollars and they're like, well, we can tell you what you're not gonna get. No idea what you're gonna get. We, we don't know what the other 99.9% does. You're talking about tech companies uh, like uh, your work has really sped up the process on cancer. Could Amazon and Google and Silicon Valley get involved in healthcare? Is that going to speed up healthcare? Well, they, I mean, they are. They, you know, they are getting involved. The, I, I just don't think the innovations that are going to drive this revolution in, in, in healthcare and discovery are going to come out of Amazon or Google. And Google has a big group that's focused on this. They're really smart. They're, they're, not, they're not unsophisticated. They're not naive. But I don't think that's where you're going to see the, the big breakthroughs happening. I, you know, not to say that the ivory tower of academia is, is, is like you know, the be-all, end-all. It, it's riddled with problems, and it's very slow, and it's incredibly frustrating. And we're all, we're all somewhat aware of what How are you making sure are. the right scientists get the funds they need? Well, we're a different kind of model. I mean, we, we, one of the things that... that got me to do this, that motivated me, was that I looked at all these charities that were set up that were disease specific, you know, and, you know, Milken did a great job with the prostate, you know, prostate foundation and pancreatic has a big one and, you know, there's several colorectal cancer. One. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're very disease specific and they basically sprinkle like little grants on a whole bunch of things. They're, it's like fair, a little bit of fairy dust here and there. By and large, the bulk of the research Funding is still coming from the NCI, um, and should be. You know, we 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 you know we 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 need to continue to fund the NIH. This is the plug for like funding NIH and NCI that I. What happened yeah. under divided government? You're close to congressional leaders. Do you expect that funding to continue in divided government? We did. We've done a great job. We did a great job with 21st Century Cures at the end of the Obama administration. That the that ended up getting, uh, you know, getting fully funded in the in the GOP backed funding bill. Uh, or, you know, what about now? Um, and I, you know, we, when we, we we just you know we just succeeded in the last budget and you know continuing to increase funding. Um, so you know we had been the NIH had been down, you know, on a, an inflation-adjusted basis. They were they were, I don't I don't remember what if it was 15, 20 percent, whatever it was, down from where they should be, had their funding been increased at the rate of inflation. And so we you know we've gotten them back there for the most part. I think you know more funding is needed. This is important, not, not just in terms of taking care of people and making sure that great research is getting funded. It's also important in terms of American competitiveness in the global economy because, you know, supply and demand will, will, will tell you pr more clearly than anything else where the next, uh, you know, the next several trillion dollar companies are going to get created. And we have a global aging population. Healthcare costs are rising. A larger and larger percentage of all of the income that you make in your life is going to go towards healthcare. Um, so, naturally, healthcare, biotech, pharma, um, you know, everything in that domain, you know, the more that consumes of our, of our GDP. Have the, you spoken the, to President Trump about this? I've, I've, spoken, I've spoken to other people in the White House about it. I've, and, and names? It's, and it's, and it's a priority. Any names? It's a priority. I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't be. I should be, you know, discreet in my conversations. You don't need to be discreet. I should be. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't need to be. There's no rule that says I have to be, but 
but I, but I should be. Do you think they share your priorities <laughs> in cancer? And I, th I, th I think it's I think we I think that if you see it through the lens of both, this is this is important for lowering healthcare costs. If we're not if we're not leaders, if we're not innovating, if we're not at the forefront of CRISPR um, and the the revolution that's happening there, if we're not pushing the envelope in other areas. Um, you know, we could lose our global leading leadership advantage what about his to FDA? China. What about the Food and Drug Administration under President Trump? Have they been helpful or unhelpful to your causes? Well, I mean, I think you had Scott on stage earlier, um, and I'm a huge fan of Scott's. And I think I think we have the I think we have the most aggressive FDA in terms of trying to get um, trying to get the process unstuck and get things moving faster. Ultimately, it would be nice to see a world in which you know we can. We can use more real-world real-world data in, to to make decisions about dr drug approval. You know that maybe the system for drug approval that we have now, you know, could be tweaked in various ways um, to in order to get drugs to market faster. And certainly for rare diseases, this is this has been done over the last several decades. You know, various things uh, for 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 you know orphan drug indications and things of that nature have happened. Fast track has happened, um, and and uh, and certainly for for diseases like cancer, the FDA has been pretty fast. I mean, if you have a drug that's, you know, at least somewhat better than um, its predecessors, you know, you'll get, you know, in, in an indication that's, that's, that's terminal, um, you know, you, you can get approval pretty, pretty easily. I mean, it, the problem is that a lot of these drugs only extend your life by six months or a year or something like that would be a great outcome in many cases. I'm 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 optimistic that some, that cell therapy, for instance, if you could reprogram a cell to not only recognize tumor, but give it the ability to traffic into the site of the tumor, turn off whatever programming uh, causes that cell to get shut down when it gets near the tumor. When it get you know when T cells get close to cancer, various weird things happen. We talk a lot about the t what's called the tumor microenvironment. And it's just this hostile, like, apocalyptic terrain that the that the the you know last soldiers alive in your body have to march through, and they never make it. You know, they're just crap out, and then they then they then they they almost become like zombie cells. They they become energic, and they start they start pumping out they start pumping out uh, these you know these things called cytokines, which are immune hormones that cause other cells to shut down. So, like, every, every cell that gets anywhere near, like, a pancreatic cancer cell, like, doesn't, doesn't make it. But you can, you can reprogram. It's possible to reprogram cells so that they do survive and they do reach the cancer, kill the cancer, um, and then they turn into memory cells and they hang out. And if, there's, if, if, there's a, a rec if a single cancer cell pops up anywhere in the body, it's going to get recognized and it's going to get killed. And that's going to prevent the cancer from ever mutating around this defense system that you've now set up. This, this is, whether, whether this is done through genetically modified T cells that are you know, taken outside the body and re-administered, or if someday we'll be able to do this by just injecting someone with a, a, a vector, a viral vector, or a cancer vaccine, you know, it, it, it would be a lot more convenient if you could if you could give this in a normal drug-like fashion rather than having to manufacture cells outside the body. But Carl June and Novartis have proven that you know they have a great product with a big market, um, and and you know, Kite was sold for however many billion five five six seven eight billion dollars. Uh, another cell therapy company, uh, Juno, similar similar outcome. So Gilead and and um, 
uh, Gilead Novartis and Celgene are now all in the game. And they're spending billions of dollars to, to produce cell therapies for more indications. So we're going to see a lot more of this. Um, and right now it looks like these, these drugs are going to increase healthcare costs. That's, that's the fear. If I, these, these are $500,000 treatments, very expensive, a lot of, lot of hands on these treatments, very manual process, you know, not super automated, doesn't happen at your bedside. They have to take the cells, f- send them out, modify them, turn them into a, you know, a, a, a army of, a clone army of cancer-killing assassins, you know, freeze them, send them back, unfreeze them, hope they're still alive, give them to you, and then you're like, is it going to work? What's going to happen? You know, and, and it, generally speaking for ALL or really CLL, or ALL and then CLL, you, you know, you get responses. ALL, you get fantastic responses. In patients who failed bone marrow transplants or couldn't find a donor. Mm-hmm. So, so we're seeing this work. We just, we just, you know, what's going to happen is as more companies enter the space, as this becomes more automated, these, because these are curative therapies, they don't just extend your life by six months. They cure you. So if you can move to a model where these therapies are curative and you can start to have curative therapies for pancreatic cancer, the, the burden on the system of constantly treating cancers and then ha- having a remission and then having a relapse and then having a remission and having a relapse and kind of the endless care that goes into that and the um, endless suffering that goes into having friends and family and relatives or yourself dealing with, uh, you know, dealing with, with, with cancer, which seems to always mutate around all of our best targeted therapies. No matter, no, no matter how good we get at precision medicine, we always seem to, the cancer always seems to escape. I think with cell therapy, you have the chance of real durable, stable cures. And the result of that will be costs of these therapies will come down. And then when you have, when you're cured, you're, you're cured, right? Like that's a great, that, that, that the ongoing cost of care is reduced. The hospital visits are reduced. So the, the long-term effect, I'm optimistic. I'm much more optimistic today than I was five years ago where I was like, oh my God, <laughs> the sky is falling. We're screwed. All these drugs cost $150,000. Nobody can afford them. What are we going to do? Right. And then you start to realize, wait a second, they're coming. The, the, the prices are coming down. Competition is coming into the market. Better therapies are coming. Those better therapies, if they really do cure people rather than just extend their lives, I mean, paying a couple hundred grand for a drug to extend your life for six months on average is pretty crappy. Paying a couple hundred thousand dollars for a drug that cures you is a different story. And then once that works, you can bet everybody's going to build copycat drugs. And you, and you continue to build and continue to grow with your efforts. But we only have a few minutes left, Sean, turning to, or since we're on public policy a little bit, Facebook, have they had the appropriate response, Mark Zuckerberg, to election hacking and to the breach of user data? This seems to be a theme of panels that I do now, where in the last three minutes-ish, somebody starts to ask a question he's, about he's Facebook. He's on to reporter's tricks. All right. He's, I, get where, I get where you're coming from. I, I see where this is going. You're also deflecting the question. Yeah, yeah yes. Um, so is, is the response appropriate? I, I mean, I think, I think Facebook is going through a kind of internal existential crisis they're having their own kind of um everybody i know at the company seems to be very you know asking themselves difficult questions about facebook's role in society facebook's role in journalism facebook's role in whatever and i think you know i think that's i think that's healthy and 
you, you know, it's it's like it's like you you have this you're this little startup. You're doing trying to make it. You're trying to survive. You're trying to beat off all of these big competitors. You know, Google has. I don't know if anybody remembers Google Plus, but they tried to compete with Facebook and. MySpace was the market leader until like 2008, if you can believe it. Um, and then, you know, you had you had various other attacks from other companies along the way. Snapchat at one point posed a really major threat to the company. So you, you know, you're in like survival mode, you're, you, you're, and nobody's nobody's giving you any flack for that. And then all of a sudden, there's this onslaught of you know concern. What should it do then, if it's in this existential moment? You know, I, I don't think I don't think there's necessarily one answer here. I mean, look, marketing communications better better PR is not the answer. Um, you know, you can't design. You know, you shouldn't try to design your product to 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 be you know used less because that's a weird thing for a company to do. Um, you know, that's like, and maybe if you're like a you know, liquor company or something, or a bar. Are you, you saying it's say, are you saying it's addictive? We can cut you off. Um, it's too addictive. It. I just. I think it's. I think as 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 addictive as these products are, it's very hard to imagine designing a product. You know, changing the fundamental way in which the product works and the product gets. You know, it, it, unless you're getting something out of it. Unless you're getting something out of it psychologically, um, in terms of social validation or you know a feeling of connectedness to other people, or you know, in the past you know, I've I've said like a dopamine hit to the brain when when you get a like or a comment, and unless you unless you're getting that, you're not necessarily going to contribute content. So you know, I mean, that puts Facebook in a in a, in a tricky position. I mean. You know, I, I actually think that society will self-regulate to some degree. Society? What about the government? Well, the government, the, the, the concerns that the government has are not, are not, you know, they're not like these sociological concerns that we talk about or that, that so often get talked about, or certainly that I talk about. Do you think its future is, could be as a utility? Uh, I, I don't. I don't think so. I don't. I think that. I think that there's too many other messaging platforms out there. Messaging is so ubiquitous that it's very hard to say. Oh well, you know, Facebook is somehow special because it, you know, it has so many people using it to using it for as well, a message. Suppose message it's tool. special because of what it means for democracy, what it means for the country. You think about the elections. You, you know. So you you you're only you're only ever going to be as strong as. Uh, you know your users and the tools you give your users. One idea that's that has been discussed, uh, probably within Facebook. I haven't talked to anybody at Facebook about it, but certainly elsewhere, is this notion that that you know you could crowdsource or you could you could you could have a group of people, much like with Wikipedia. I mean, there's only 20, 20 plus thousand or so people who are really managing Wikipedia, really actively going after it. And, and you, you, know, you could imagine, you could imagine a, a sort of third-party independent organization, because the problem isn't just Facebook. The problem is Google search results and how, and how they're ranked and how you can, one can use you know, search engine optimization to game those rankings. The problem is anybody with a feed that's algorithmic 
How do you, how do you deal with that? And there's no metadata, right? So we don't have any kind of unbiased metadata that doesn't have any kind of political, political bias associated with it. You know, and, and, and it's, very, it's very hard for anybody to trust Google or Facebook or Amazon or whoever to fix their algorithms. So you can imagine a third party entity that's, that's unbiased, truly unbiased, that, that you know, where, the, where you know, behind every Wikipedia page, if you ever go to, you don't want to do this, but if you ever go to the notes section, you can see the warfare that's occurring. I mean, it's like a, it's like a battle for control of the page. And there are, there are hundreds of people that are, like attacking each other, and half of them are trolls and sort of called sock puppets, which are fake people, and, and, and they're all at war with each other. But there, there's enough people who hire firms with fake people over here, and enough people who have firms with fake people over here that they kind of balance but each other out. Does it make out. sense that to have a, a, a democracy, a country that has elections that rely on Facebook to provide a lot of voters information, to have sock puppets and trolls? Oh, no, I didn't say on Facebook. I said okay. on some sort of third party. Some, some sort of, some sort of. Well, you compared it to Wikipedia. What else would it be? Well, Wikipedia, well, Wikipedia is an example of a third party that self-regulates, and, and I'm sure, you know, it, it, we've all experienced that it's full of inaccuracies, but it can be corrected, and and you know, if you if you engage with it correctly, or if you engage with Wikipedia editors who are experienced, who have a good track record for editing Wikipedia pages, then you know you can you can get a page fixed and you can get information corrected, and Wikipedia by and large does a pretty good job of doing a, of solving a problem that's way more complex than analyzing whether you're dealing with a fact piece or an opinion piece, whether you know whether the language in a in a given article is is meant to be emotionally inflammatory or whether it's or whether it's unbiased sort of news newsroom type language, sort of traditional journalistic language. The, those types of things can be solved easily. The question of fact-checking articles is a more complex question. But again, you could see a third party doing that. I guess what I'm saying is it's going to be very difficult for the public and the press to trust that Amazon, Facebook, Google, and others are, right. are, going, to, are going to solve this problem. Final question. You got stuck with me as an interviewer. So 2020, the presidential race. Do you have any... Maybe it's President Trump, maybe it's a Democrat, maybe it's an independent. Do you have any candidate who catches your eye? And if so, tell us who. And if not, how do you see it playing out? It was actually great that I got stuck with a political reporter because I just made up a whole bunch of crazy science stuff that made, wasn't true. And That's true. I, I, have a, I, I wasn't entirely sure what he was saying was spot on on every T-cell thing he was saying. But I trust someone would have stood up and yeah. call them out if it was really egregious. But I, trust, I trusted you enough. Yeah, yeah. So, so the political question was, was what? 2020. <laughs> do, you have a, do you have a candidate who's in mind? And uh, if so, tell us. And if not, how do you it's think... It's the lightning it round. I got an extra minute. Thir- anyway. It's true. So... Um... <laughs> we should not have the clock when Sean comes back. <laughs> Kidding. No, I'm, 2020. I'm, I'm breaking the... What is it, whatever. the fourth wall? Fourth wall, third, third, wall. third wall. You're the Silicon wall. Valley guy. You should know these terms. Fourth wall. Fourth wall. I don't know. Okay. Whatever. 2020. Anyway. Um, so, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, it's too early for me to have an... Well, what do you want in a presidential candidate? Well, I think we want what everybody wants, which is we want, we want stability, we want good governance, We'd like, you know, like a boring president. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I what about I mean, Vice President Biden? Uh, I'm not saying he's boring, but he, he, he's worked on cancer. I'm sure you know him. 
Yes. No, we know each other really well. I mean, he's he's great. He's, he's and he has a very big heart and he has a lot of empathy and you know, he he's not he's not boring. He's 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 very engaging. Um I I don't know what he's going to do. I mean, I 2 years ago, you know, he would have said absolutely not, you know. I I don't know. I don't know. It's hard it I I don't want to speculate about what who's running what, what you know what, what do I feel about them it's going to be hard to win a primary in this in this at this moment in time without without breaking through a huge amount of noise and a huge you know we're going to see in the democratic field uh, uh, something similar to what we saw in the republican field um, and what happens when you have 10 or 15 candidates running is that they the kind of mainstream candidates tend to split the vote and then you end up with the least boring candidate um, so, I, you know, I, 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 I don't know, maybe, maybe one way, or, one way or another we'll end up with, uh, you know, your job is too fun right now. That's the problem. You're, you're, you were about it, to say something good. It's just, don't I'm just turn saying, it on me. your job is too fun. What were fun. you about to say? No, I, I'm actually you're, just, I'm just thinking say. it was, you know, it was, it was great back when people used to say like, oh God, I just, who even cares? They're all the same. Just, they all are exactly alike. These candidates are so similar. I just can't even. I can't even politics. And now you're. Now it's like all oh, anyone talks about. You know, I have to pay. Pe- it's like, can you get someone to talk about something else? Like here, we're supposed to be talking about cancer. Look what happened. We talked about cancer. <laughs> Sean Parker. That's all the time we have for today. A reminder to our audience. Thank you, yeah. Sean Parker. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. And just wait one second. Uh, a reminder, if you want to watch any interviews from today's program or catch up on past programs, you can find that all at WashingtonPostLive.com. Another round of applause for Sean Parker. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.